Bob McCallum podcast is brought to you by Bet Rivers. Download the Bet Rivers online casino and sportsbook app today. Account Shannon with you. Some soccer and baseball on today's program. A yeah. split squad, as they say. Well, I don't know about just soccer. We're talking to one of the great talents in Canadian television. True. Yeah. James Duffy of TSN will join us, I think, for the first time ever yes. on this po- podcast. Yep. And then our pal Rob Longley of the Toronto Sun was at the winter baseball meetings where nothing happened pertaining for to the, the Jays. Blue Jays. For the Jays, yeah. Right. Things happened. Lots, but- ha- lots, ha- lots happened, but not, but the, the expectation of the Jays being in on any of those free agents, uh, you know, went, went out the window when the nut, when the dollar started to go up. That's right. Longly later on, Duffy is next, though, back after this. Hi, this is Bob McCowan for BetRivers.com. Hey, if you're looking for a sports book or casino app, you should check out the BetRivers Sports and Casino app today. Play all of your favorite casino games for real money anywhere and anytime. Plus, get in the action with each sports game with hundreds of sports betting options. And get ready to feel like a VIP because you'll earn both loyalty level points and bonus store points on every real money wager you make. You must be 19 plus, available in Ontario only. Please play responsibly. If you have questions or concerns about your gambling or someone close to you, contact Connex Ontario at 1-866-531-2600 or speak to an advisor free of charge. BetRivers. Dot com. McCowan and Shannon along again today, and uh, a first time. Can I say it? Can I say? Can I say it? Yeah, sure. Look who! Look who the cat dragged in. Yeah. <laughs> James Duffy of uh, TSN makes his first appearance with us, and we thank you very much. How you doing? Okay. I'm doing great. Thank you guys. Uh, thanks you guys for having me. I'm a long time listener, first time caller. Now, now, let's be honest. Are you, uh, you, you were in, uh, now do you say Qatar or Qatar? You know, we went through this, the news people, uh, we're always using sort of a cutter. And okay. I brought this up, our first major meeting about six months ago, and they said, it's Qatar. We called the embassy, they call it Qatar. Now, when I got over there, I think it's sort of in between where it's Qatar, Qatar, <laughs> but I gave up. <laughs> Okay. No, no jet lag. No, no jet lag yet. Are you still? What, what are your sleeping hours? I got sick. There is a uh, a Qatari flu that is real because every single one of our crew members that has come back has gotten sick. And for me, I was a hundred percent fine. And as soon as I got on the plane, started to cough, and basically until yesterday, I was uh, not getting off the couch. I had to get off the couch because we had to do a Leaf game, but. Uh, yeah, I was, I was, I was not well, but I'm not sure what that is. I'm not sure if that's a virus or if that is, you know, when you work really hard for a long time and then maybe like your immune system kind of makes you get through it because they knows you have to work. And then as soon as your work's over, it collapses. I'm not sure what it is. How long is the flight or the flights? 14 hours on the way home, wow. uh, 12 and a half on the way there. So jet stream, I guess, but it was long. Um, but I took a lot of medicine, Bob, and I, <laughs> it was way better coming back as it always is because, so my flight left at one thirty-five in the morning and 
uh, pop a couple of pills, go to sleep, slept for like eight hours, woke up, and then, you know, three, four more hours, flight's over, and it's 7.30 at home. So you feel kind of normal. I didn't have any adjustment, whereas on the way there, I was a mess for the first 10 days in Qatar, basically. Really? Now they always they, they, people people that work in the World Cup or, or work in the in the FIFA world always say it's a bigger event than the Olympics. And you have done both now on site. Uh, what's the comparison? A lot of similarities, I think, in the way. Uh, first of all, this is my first World Cup, and I think it's an incomparable World Cup because you were never going to have another one where everything is in one city. Where uh, in World Cups, you you know, you might play a game or cover a game or two and then have to fly three hours to cover the next game. Whereas, you know, these stadiums were all 40 minutes away from each other, which was just bizarro world. So it was similar to an Olympics in that sense, uh, where everything was kind of in one place and the venues were all just here, there and everywhere. Uh, I think that it, it felt bigger. And the reason it felt bigger to me was because at an Olympics, I don't feel like you get that many fans that come in from other countries. You know, the athletes mm -hmm. are maybe family and friends. But in a World Cup, you truly have, you know, tens of thousands of people that come from all 32 of these nations and God knows where else. And so to me, that was the coolest part. I don't want to get hokey, but you're down in one of the villages or the centers of the town. And there's literally, it's like the entire world mosaic is there. And so in that sense, it felt bigger than an Olympics in, in a sense to me, because you really felt that that worldly feel to it. Well, Olympics are kind of corporate, I think, in some ways in the stands when you get to the actual events. We heard horror stories about accommodations there, uh, fans being in tent cities and places like that. I assume you were in a normal hotel. Yeah, we were in a normal Western, uh, no problems whatsoever. Uh, my only complaint, Bob, was that, uh, you know, I had the uh, Marriott titanium status or whatever. And so the first few nights I was into the lounge where I had unlimited wine and, and food. And then Brazil showed up and took over our hotel and they took over the lounge. So Neymar, <laughs> Neymar was drinking my wine. My uh, you know, it, it, it's funny you say that because I, I find this a lot in covering Olympics or again, this is my first World Cup, but the reports in in the media are of, of all these stories and let's face it we're leading a privileged life in a nice hotel covering the events but i, I didn't really see any of that like most of my experience and you can only go off your own experience sure was really good logistically it was really easy to get around um they had a million volunteers and so you had no problems it was better than any olympics i'd ever been to as far as that way like organization yeah. just getting from place to place, getting into the stadium and out, all of that was great. I mean, I'm hesitant to say all that because people are going to come home and say, oh, you got sport washed, right? But yeah. I go on my my own experience and it, it, it was really good. Of course, maybe that was a really vanilla experience away from all the, you know, the villages where the, the migrant workers lived and so on and so forth. But just from a covering it aspect, it was really good. How what did you... Right. How did you approach the whole concept of of the non soccer stories? Mm. What was your what was what was your what was the what was you know TSN and CTV's philosophy on how you tell the you know right. the migrant worker stories? Well, we talked about it a lot beforehand and even a lot during. Uh, we had we were fortunate 
have, you know, before the Canada games, we had three hour pregame shows. And even before the, we basically were on the air the entire time, right? With our postgame shows and then a pregame show for the next game. So within that time frame, it gave us the ability to, you know, Omar Sachedina was over from CTV News. So he would come in and guest on set and they'd run his, you know, four or five minute stories on those issues. And he'd do a talk back with Luke or Lindsay or myself or whoever it may be. Uh, I would try to somehow mention it, uh, certainly in the early shows, somewhere along the way. And my own, this is kind of silly, but my own little personal statement or protest or whatever, I, I tried to not ever say, you know, we have endless, as a host, you have these endless beauty shots of the stadiums coming in and out of break. And I, I tried never to say the spectacular, stunning stadiums because of what had happened to build them. So I'm sure no one at home noticed, and it was only to me, but I would just never say, look how gorgeous this is. I would just let people, if they wanted to assume that on their own, but I wasn't going to say it. Uh, I would make a little note of it here and there um, in the midst of a pregame, somewhere in the three hours, you know, not forgetting what went on in, in building these stadiums and the history of this country. Um, but beyond that, I think you really have to realize that most people turning in are turning in to watch the games. And even though it's CTV on board with us and TSN, it's a sports network. And I don't think they want it shoved down their throat. So I think you cover it, you address it. But for the most part, we remained a sports show throughout. And if people didn't agree with that, hey, I get it. Um, but hopefully there was enough coverage in there and, and on CTV News or whatever to cover those issues off. Did you, did you really notice the cultural difference of being in Qatar? Bob, it was such a strange place, and and I don't have a good uh, analogy for it. Except it's kind. Of, I felt like if you go to like, you know, for Morocco at Epcot, <laughs> that, that's what like, it felt like a Disney set in many ways because it's such a new country. For example. If you're watching, if you're watching any of the World Cup, you see the background behind our panel today. It's called the Souk. So it's kind of a central area in the city. And it is the closest thing in Doha to a, you know, an old town, Middle Eastern, where there's little alleyways and merchants selling their things. Yeah. Well, that was built like 15 or 20 years ago, but they built it to be like an old town in an old Middle Eastern city. So you had that sense of history with narrow little alleyways and so on. Uh, but it's again brand new. Brand new, yeah. Hence the, the Disney set feel to the entire thing, um, and so that's kind of what I felt like. It's it's all so so new, uh, and it's this little three hundred thousand people city, you know, the size of I don't know Etobicoke or something, and mm. yet they've just in the last twenty years and ten years since you know built a subway system that is only to take people directly to the stadiums, like. It's they spent three hundred billion dollars, and so it's mind numbing. It's very this clean. Everything you see is brand new, and so do, did I get a real Middle Eastern experience? I don't know. We went out to the desert to to ride a camel, and but it's very much an Instagram type of thing where you you get out of your car, you get on the camel for ten minutes, you take a couple of photos, you get off the camel, right? So I'm not in the middle of the Sahara, even though yeah. the photos are that way. So it had a very Disney esque. It was like Disney Middle East to me, uh, which was very strange. And I couldn't, I was there for 19 days. I, 
I hadn't quite figured the place out by the time I'd left. Really? And what what sense did you get about uh, Canada's soccer team? I mean, you were were you able to get close to them? How uh, what was your access to them, or was it like a typical Olympics where they they were cordoned off for you, other than a mixed zone situation? Yeah, very very limited. So that was my job there. I was there for Canada, and as soon as Canada was done, I was coming home. So I went to training every single day. You have this very limited, they let the cameras out so you can watch the first 15 minutes of training, which is absolutely useless because all they're doing is stretching. They don't want you to see anything. After 15 minutes, they usher you back into the little media tent and you sit there for two hours waiting for practice to be over. And then they will bring out maybe one player, maybe two players a day for a news conference. And that's the only access you would get. And I'm sure you heard the complaints about some people not getting access to Alfonso Davies. Uh, we were a little bit more spoiled as rights holders where we got more access there. Uh, so you don't learn very much. Uh, Alistair Johnston happens to happen to have grown up uh, a few streets away from me. He's from a, here in Aurora. And so I know him very well and was able to sort of chat with him a little bit during the tournament. But that that was essentially the end of it. Um, and that was fine. I get it. It's, mm. you know, top secret and, and everything else. Uh, uh, so... It was that part of it I kind of knew going in and, and had accepted that we weren't going to get a lot from that. Um, what did I think of Canada overall? I mean, the can Canadian soccer organization is a bit of a mess. I'd say that straightforwardly. But uh, I thought it, it, it's a weird way to evaluate. Uh, I thought we were I thought everyone was fine to say, you know, after that performance against Belgium, that that was. I don't think it's a loser mentality to say, you know, that was a good performance, even though they lost, because you have to get perspective of how bad it's been for the last 20 years. And, you know, going back to that 8-1 loss to Honduras in 2012 or whatever, this, this program was so bad for so long that I think it's okay to appreciate them just being there. Having said that, I think there were disappointments in the next couple of games and you know, that half hour span against Croatia and the first half against Morocco showed that there's still there's still a massive gap here mm. between Canada and and the elite nations in the world, which uh, is going to take more than probably four years to to narrow that gap. But it was pretty darn cool as a Canadian to just see them there and have people from other countries coming up to you and saying, holy crap, your your team was a lot better than I thought they'd be. Um, <laughs> I think that, that was neat. Would you categorize yourself as a soccer fan? I'm uh yes. I mean, I don't pretend, Bob, to be a uh, a diehard. I don't, I just frankly, with so much else I'm covering, I don't have time to watch Premier League every single Saturday and Bundesliga and everything else. I follow the national team closely for a long time and uh, watch every single one of their qualifying games for probably the last six years. Uh, even though they didn't get to the hex very much until two years ago. But uh, so I'm a, an international football fan more than um, a diehard follower of, of all the leagues, which, which made it, you know, out of my comfort zone a little bit in, in, in doing this. Um, but uh, yeah, I put a lot more studying than I would put in for like the NHL season. Yeah. I was going to ask you that. Yeah exams for the last six months but it it was uh it was fun and as you know as a host it's you're totally relying on the guys next to you and i happen to have you know janine becky and kevin kilban and, and julian de guzman and all the people i had on my panel were so good 
that you could kind of ask a question and then sit back and and just watch them do their thing. Sure. What'd you get the sense? What'd you get sense of the narrative around Herdman over there? Not from not from Canadians, but from others. I think he had a rough last week there. I really do. Now, I don't think that should tarnish everything he's done. I think he did a a ludicrous job to get them here, and the fact how much the players loved him. Every one of them speaking about that going into the tournament. I think I don't think you can paint that, but he was a rookie on that stage, and I think he made some rookie mistakes. And I'm, I'm not going to dwell on the whole, uh, you know, the whole F Croatia, whatever. Uh, you say one thing in the heat of the moment, and but it, you know, tactically, I think most of the experts that harder than me said he made some mistakes in that Croatia game, and and. And in that Morocco game. And so I think first time on the big stage, he, he made some mistakes. And I think when once he sits back, he'll probably admit that as well. Do you think he'll get an offer from a big club that'll entice him? I'm not sure. I'm not sure this tournament helped his cause. And that's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not sure. Uh I think going in that that was a definite possibility and maybe even after the Belgium game, that was more of a possibility. I don't think he was ever going to the premier league, maybe the championship, the second tier there yeah. would have been a possibility. Uh, I'm not sure that, you know, a couple of mistakes like that will, will, will knock you that far down the pegs as far as your resume goes. I, I'm not, again, I don't pretend to know enough about uh, the way they hire international top quality soccer coaches for that. But maybe he needs this, you know, one more four-year cycle uh, and to have some success in 2026 to do it. In some ways, I think he's perfect for international football. Like, don't you mm -hmm. think the way he is, you know, he's such a – the whole motivational thing, right? The way he speaks, he's, he's such a motivator. And I think that may work better in cycles where you only see players, you know, for a camp every three months or a tournament every four or five months than seeing them week at week in week out all the all the stuff he does with the sword and uh you know the speeches i i feel in some ways that's better for country than for club in some ways and that he might have to you. make yeah. some serious to actually be a, a club coach but again i think you know what he's done for the women's program and then the men's program over the last decade is uh is phenomenal he's a bit of a pied piper there's no question about that, that, you know, people follow him. I mean, he's a, he's an amazing guy. Well, they said, you know, they had the sword, right. That's been sort of their symbol. Uh, I yeah. think story on it that they've brought into these games and they come out and they fire it into the turf. And I, I, I said straight up to Julian de Guzman and to St. Ricketts and Janine Becky, I like, come on, like these guys, some of these guys are, Atiba Hutchinson's 39 years old. He's played for like a dozen clubs. Are they going to really buy into this stuff? Right. And I could see 20 year olds or whatever. And, and they said, yeah, some of the guys will be rolling their eyes, but I don't know. Then we showed the video of them actually doing it and they seem to be buying in. So, <laughs> I guess we're, you know, I'm so used to dealing with professional athletes in the NHL or NFL that are so jaded that I wouldn't think they'd buy into all these hokey motivational things, but if it works for Herdman, then it works. Right. Yeah. yeah. Now I must admit I've never gotten to the bottom of it, but I didn't watch all three hours of every pregame show, James. I'm sorry. I was a little uh, bit busy, uh, um, uh, but it, I was, I really was surprised to see Chris Hatfield stand beside him. Well, so were we, uh, we didn't see that. 
I, I didn't notice until the national anthem and good on cannabis <laughs> keeping that quiet because I, I didn't you do it i did a double take i'm like that looks like Hatfield beside him is that some assistant coach i don't know but yeah. uh, uh and i think you know that was that was pretty cool i know the players said that all had, had an impact on them so uh, to me those were my favorite moments like to that first national anthem before belgium uh i got i, I gotta admit i'm usually like you guys jaded guys been doing this a long time but i got a little worked up standing in those stands watching those guys arm in arm belting out the anthem i thought that was pretty cool comparable to, i guess to the world junior when you worked the world junior i would assume yeah I, I think so but you know that's every year and you know they belt it out when you when you win the gold medal but uh this i don't know you felt the weight of those 36 years on those on those young men so um that was pretty cool <sighs> Are you looking forward to 2026? Did this like enhance your, the soccer in you? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I'm really glad they made this one, Bob, just because it was the last 32 team tournament. The, the right. felt like world cup, this, this watered down version four years from now and beyond is not going to be the same. And uh, you know, it's, you're, you're going to have, even in Canada's circumstance, they're probably going to win their first game because when you're when you're a host, you get into the top pod when they do the draw. So they're going to be if it's groups of three, which they're talking about, you're going to have a, a country from 17 to 32, and then one from 33 to 48. So Canada could be playing, you know, Bahrain and Saudi Arabia or something like that in their group, and I don't I don't think that's that's quite the same. So. I think it's, you know, it's going to be really neat that it's, that it's in Canada. Um, uh, but again, I, I think it's different when you're actually overseas at a real world cup uh, mm -hmm. uh, than making it as a host. So uh, I'm, I'm glad that they got this one. Okay. Back to reality. Mm -hmm. How, uh, what do you make of the Marner streak? How important is the Marner streak when you put it in terms of context of what we've seen in the last 50 years in hockey? First of all, I got to comp. I got to uh, admit to this, and I'm, I'm sure Bob, you've had these moments when you've gone on vacation for three weeks and came back to prime time or something. And I, I, I did host the least game last night, and I've never felt more unprepared or a lack of knowledge. <laughs> oh, I know, <laughs> I've been there. Because the, you know, the games are on in the middle of the night over there, so you literally, I, I can't watch them, and so I'll catch maybe a highlight or you know, a Twitter, a tweet on what happened the next day. And so I, I showed up at work last night and I was trying to look back at some of the highlights and seeing how Marner had done all this. And uh, I felt very sheepish about my, my actual lack of, <laughs> but I, uh, you know, I, a, a streak is whatever it's a, a record, but I, I think, you know, John, if you, if you look at how he's played reportedly, <laughs> uh overall throughout it's not just one of those things where you're getting you know lucky little points or uh uh you know garbage assists to keep the streak going he's been you know mvp caliber play and i think considering uh all the the panic five or six games in after that west coast trip for for him to play like that for the entire team to play like that with three defensemen out is uh is is, is pretty remarkable i was really concerned last night because the last game i hosted was the Hall of Fame game on the Friday night. Right. It was also their their last regulation loss. So if I came back and then they lost again, they would have never let me back on the panel. Oh, I think they would have. 
Uh, listen, we'll let you go. Um, it's been a joy to have time to chat with you. Uh, we hope we'll be able to do it again sometime down the road. Uh, thanks, pal. Nice to see you. Uh, nice to see you guys as well. Congrats on all the success with the podcast. And maybe you guys can teach me how to get sponsors because I have none for mine. <laughs> we'll do what we can. <laughs> I don't know. Talk about smoke and mirrors last night on the on the panel. This is smoke and mirrors every day. <laughs> yeah. James Duffy of uh, TSN will be back in a minute. The Bob McCowan podcast is brought to you by BetterHelp. Unfortunately, life doesn't come with a user manual, so when it's not working for you, it's normal to feel stuck. Navigating any of life's challenges can make you feel unsure, whether it's a career change, a new relationship, or even becoming a parent. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. The therapists are trained to help you figure out the cause of challenging emotions and teaching you productive coping skills. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com bobcast. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Bobcast. Our thanks to uh, James Duffy for uh, joining us, and we're switching gears a little bit now to talk baseball. Our friend Rob Longley of the Toronto Sun was uh, in San Diego for the winter baseball meetings where it was expected there would be lots of action. And I guess there was some, but none of it involved the Toronto Blue Jays. Are you really surprised? No, Bob, I'm not really surprised because this is typically the way that they approach their uh, their off seasons and, and under this management group in this front office. What maybe so the, the the ones that are surprised are the Blue Jays. I mean, I think the market moved much quicker and much more aggressively than they anticipated, and they were left uh, holding the bag with all that Rogers money. And um, maybe they didn't react quick enough because the off season is moving very rapidly now, and they still have holes to fill and. I don't know how many options they have and what they're going to be able to do over the next month and a half. The caveat, of course, is in the past few winters, they have done some of their best business in 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 late December and early January. But this seems to be a much different market than what we've seen in recent years. And, and I wonder if they maybe misgaged it a little bit. I have a slightly different perspective, and John knows this. I'm not sure at all that the Blue Jays went into this offseason with a bag full of money that they were ready to spend. I'm not sure that this wasn't just a mirage that we're in on this guy and that guy and this guy and that guy. And I don't think they had any intention of being in that marketplace. I don't think they're in the marketplace for a $40 million pitcher or a $37 million shortstop, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because there's a lot of money was being thrown around in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with that now. Mark Shapiro, the team president, met with us uh, early in the week, Tuesday, I think it was, and basically said that, you know, he's been assured by Rogers Communications that they have this kind of money and, and, and that they're willing to spend it. But I'm not convinced, Bob. I think it's, you know, they have they have permission and they have clearance to spend some money, but not to not to spend money at the elite levels of the game like like some of these other teams um were doing because on the other side of the coin they sort of saw they, they've been soft selling their approach by saying 
you know, we don't really have that many holes to fill. We need a back of the rotation guy, not a starter. We need a, you know, a corner outfield. We don't need to sign a guy to a long-term deal. We just need somebody to, to, to be out there. So on one hand, they're saying they've got all this money to spend and are willing to spend it. On the other hand, their shopping list is, is drastically different than it has been in the past when they extended Jose Barrios and when they went and got George Springer and, and even when they got Yunjin Ryu to sort of start this uh, uh, spending part of the rebuild. So yeah, I think we're getting mixed messages from the front office and from the executive suite on how this is going down. And we certainly saw that over the past week. Did you get Rob? Did you get a sense that they actually targeted one person? Like, was it Cody Bellinger? It was was he the guy that was supposed to be at the top of the list? And then when they when he signed with the Cubs, they were a little shocked. No, I think it was Andrew Heaney. I think what that was the guy that they really wanted. Um, I think they thought so. They saw him as a as a perfect fit to that rotation. Remember, they they're banking a whole lot on Jose Barrios being a lot yeah. better than he was last year, which which probably should happen. Um, and then, you know, with Manoa and Gosman at the front end of that, they just really needed a good fourth or fifth guy and they really targeted him. And I think they were a little surprised that, um, that he went the other way that he went to Texas, but this, this, uh, made me think of something else in that, you know, there's this whole perception that baseball players love to come to, to Toronto. And, you know, there certainly are some attractive parts of playing on a team that's upwardly mobile like this, and it's a great city, blah, blah, blah. But any of the big big deals that they've made over the past uh, number of years seem to have come with a premium, right? I mean, they had to pay a little bit extra to get George Springer. They had to pay a little bit extra to extend Barrios. They even had to pay a little bit extra to get Yunjin Ryu. Um, so they have to overpay the market to get these guys. And then when the market goes uh, sky high, it's, it's it's difficult for them to, to adapt on the fly. I think they were interested in Bellinger. Uh, to your point, John, I think they were interested in him, but they saw enough flaws in, in, in his performance. I mean, he's certainly not on a on an upswing in his in his in his in his career right now. Uh, and once the money got a little high for, for them at that point, they, they they walked away from it. I think maybe they'll be looking at a guy like, you know, a Michael Brantley or something like that. But the names keep falling off the board, and uh, and they've got nothing. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure that outfield is a necessity. I think it's a want. But I think you're right. I think the fourth starter is what they really, really need. Right. And I'm just not sure where they're going to go to get that guy. If you traded one of your catchers, the likelihood of getting a pitcher in return who could fit that mold is pretty unlikely, I think. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what organization will, pitch, will, will throw a starting pitcher out, um, you know, for a starting catcher. I'm just not, that's usually not how it works. You're, you're right, Bob. And, and, you know, add on to that, that the, the trade market was, is, is fairly tepid right now. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I suppose if, if you had a, a, an organization that was in love with the, the prospects of the prospect, Gabriel Marino, then maybe you could, you could get something tangible in return. And again, it's not a front of the rotation guy. Um, but you know, what are you, what kind of a picture are you going to get for Danny Jansen? And mm -hmm. what kind of a pitcher are you going to get for Alejandro Kirk? The Jays love Alejandro Kirk, and they love where he fits in the lineup. They love his bat, but yeah, I'm not so sure if if, if other if other management crews across baseball see a guy that you know could be injured at any moment um, because of because of the fact that he's not a, a physical specimen. So yeah, you know, heading into these meetings, the talk was that, that the Jays have all this trade bait in, in, in the catcher position, but. We had, we heard nothing down there of sort of teams that were interested, you know, had high interest or were willing to offer what the Jays 
need for any of those guys. So yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with you there, Bob. But you know, it's it's funny. The week started out with um, with Ross Atkins essentially saying that when we asked him about Kikuchi, you know, what, what were the prospects for him improving with some tweaks in the offseason? And he basically, you know, he didn't sound very optimistic. By the end of the week, they're they're essentially saying, well, you know, we could probably go into the season with Kikuchi and Mitch White if we had to. And mm. that's not what Jays fans want to hear. And that's not what the, this team needs. I mean, they need an upgrade at the starting pitcher position. And, you know, the, uh, as of, as we sit here today, no real prospects of that happening. The one place that I thought uh, that they could move one of the catchers to was to St. Louis. And then when St. Louis went and got the guy out of Chicago, yeah, that probably depressed the front office a little bit as well, correct? Yeah, you know, it's it just seemed like every day there was a, a new transaction that kind of um, was a collective sort of exhale of, in, in a bad way for for the Jays, uh, whether it was free agents they had targeted going off the board, and then and then you know the Cardinals who had had been the logical, as you say, John, the logical trade partner for a catcher, uh, making a deal and, and and taking that out of the mix. So it just didn't. It, to me, it didn't seem like anything fell their way, and. Um, I won't say that they were ill-prepared. I think they went in with a plan, but the plan just didn't work in, in this market. And they, you know, it takes two, right? You have to find the right agent and the right team to to make a deal with. And and it, and they and they just weren't out there for the Blue Jays. Now the offseason isn't over yet, you know, as we said, and That's as right. Atkins said, each day out there, it doesn't end on Thursday. But this is a different market than in the past, and this is a team that, you know, isn't shopping for a major overhaul, but uh, shopping for some some up just some upgrades to to take it to the next level. And, and, you know, I don't, I don't see what's, what's going to happen over the next little while. I wonder whether this organization looks at itself and sees what they have right now being good enough to win the division. The Yankees got out to that great start last year, but the Yankees are flawed. Tampa Bay, that string of miraculous success may be over. Baltimore is coming. Boston certainly isn't. Maybe, maybe 91, 92 wins, wins the division. And maybe that's what they're looking for. Yeah. You know, as crazy as it sounds, Bob's, as you meant, as you mentioned, uh, Baltimore may be the biggest threat in that division. I agree. They are I think they are. Yeah. But, you know, they're, they certainly are still a ways away from what even, even this currently constituted uh, Blue Jays uh, roster is. And, you know, maybe they, Maybe the Jays look at it like, yeah, we can we can be, if not running away with the the division um, at the at or near the top of it, and maybe you make the move at the trade deadline, the, 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 the you know to exactly over the top and make a run for it. That's I hadn't thought of it that way because, you know, um, as the judge thing was uh, was playing out down there, the, the, certainly the sense was it was really desperate times for the Yankees. It's like if they don't get Judge, where are they going to be? And that team was. You know, we saw over the last couple of months of the season, that team was was nothing that was a, a terrible threat. I mean, they were decent, right? They, but I mean, they made all their ground in the, at the start of the season, and and then had had Aaron Judge carry them the rest of the way. But they've got definitely got flaws, as you said. Boston's nowhere near it, and Tampa's definitely on on the on the downslide. And since they don't spend money, you know, I, I could see them slipping dramatically next year. So maybe it's Jays and Orioles, and maybe the Jays do have enough to. Uh, 
um, to, to at least be contenders in that division until the trade deadline and, and, and look at enhancing them. In some ways, it's a lot easier to enhance your, your lineup at the trade deadline, right? Because sure. that's when there's shop, clear shoppers and clear buyers, and, and, and that would work as well. Well, especially in the pitching area. Right. I mean, there are, there are pitchers available at the trade deadline that aren't available during the offseason. Everyone, because everybody thinks they're going to be good. Yeah, agreed. And you can't go into a season without a rotation, right? I mean, you need depth at that position. And if you're out of it in, in August, then it's easy to easy to move on from somebody That's right. and, and collect assets in return. What, what was the reaction to the money being spent all week uh, at the meetings? You, you'd be walking the floor and, and you'd hear something. You'd hear 43.3 for two, for two years per year for Verlander. What, what was the reaction there? I think there was a little bit of surprise, John. Maybe not with Verlander off the top, although there were certainly some eyebrows raised with him. But it was almost like he was the trigger point. And, and you know, things just kept happening. And like a, a guy like uh, Taiwan Walker, what did he get, 72 million over four years? Yeah. And we saw him in the uh, in the Buffalo year with the Blue Jays. And, you know, he was a decent pitcher. And But 72 million for, for a guy like that who was almost sort of run of the mill. The pitching market especially, I think, really – Blew people away the 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 type of money that 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 uh, teams were paying for starting pitching, and starting pitching that quite frankly looked like just a little bit above average over over the the past couple of seasons. So, um, it became a situation of how do teams react to that, and how do you alter your plan the the plan that you came into the meetings with, and and where do you go from there? So, I mean, the Jays kept telling us that you know the. It, as as much as you hope to get somebody uh, during the winter meetings. Um, the key work is the groundwork that you that you lay that for the deals that you can make afterwards. I'm not so sure I buy that because um, some years are different than others, and this this certainly uh, fell into that category where the where the market moved in in dramatic and, and aggressive fashion, and the and the and the, whether the Jays weren't ready to do it or just didn't see that see the right the uh, right fit for them, uh, it kind of passed them by. So who's left in the pitching market for the Blue Jays to aspire to? Who do you think? Yeah, I don't. I don't really know. I mean, it's, 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 it's pretty light out there. I think. I think they were really sort of crushed when they lost, when they lost Heaney, um, and they're not going to go to the to the high end of it. So I think they really have to explore trade options. And you know, my sense was that there wasn't a whole lot happening in that uh, in that regard. I mean, do they go back to Ross Stripling? Um, Ross Stripling is going to get paid, um, and I think there's a lot of people that would suggest that as good as stripling was for the blue jays last year um and as important as he was when the rest of the back end of the rotation fell apart that he may have reached a career pinnacle in terms of what he's capable of right he is mm -hmm. not a killer type starter he's a, a useful starter he's more of a he's better as a bulk guy he's probably a good fifth or sixth a reasonable fifth or sixth starter who really overachieved in a, in a good year to do it because those yeah. guys are getting paid right now. And I don't know if the, I, I think the Jays probably know enough about him that they're not going to give him whatever it's going to take four years and 45, $50 million. I don't think that, that they would see that as a, as a, as a wise investment because they know him well enough. So, but, but, but desperate times, I mean, if, if there's nothing else out there, do you, do you not circle back and, and see what you can do with, with Ross Stripling? I may have agreed with you, but as the season went on and Stripling continued to have you know, commendable success. I started to wonder whether there's more to him than I had previously thought. Cause I, I was in your camp until 
obviously past midseason, but I wonder whether Stripling might not be a good fit on a two-year contract. You know, even at even at uh, fifteen million a year. Yeah, if you could get him for that, I mean, if you could, like, this is his this is his payday, right? This is this right. is the one where he's looking for term and money. But if you could get 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 him on something like that, a two year deal, thirty million or whatever, I mean, I think it probably would be useful. And you make a good point, Bob, because a couple of things about about his performance. Yeah, once he had a little bit of success, um, it's clear that he got some confidence with that. And, mm-hmm. and he really added a you know a good mix of pitches into his repertoire. He was throwing four or five different pitches, and then he got even more confident, right? He because he, all of a sudden he had versatility. He's not a guy who's blowing you away with his fastball. It's it's all no. about the pitch mix that he was using. And you know, as, as I remember having a conversation with him very late in the season, and he said, you know, um, I always kind of felt that I had this kind of stuff in me, but. I never really got the chance. Never, mm-hmm. never did get the chance. In, well, he did. not No, I mean, he was in a strong, a, you know, a really deep rotation. He was very useful for the Dodgers. I mean, every team, every good team needs a guy like that who you can throw in in the second or third inning and get five or six if the situation calls for it, or a sixth starter if you, if it calls for it. But he never had the opportunity in his in his career to be a legit every fifth day starter. And once he got comfortable in that role, and he started to thrive on it, and and became a more complete pitcher. And you're right, Rob, Bob, by the end of the year, he was, he, he was, uh, you had more confidence in his ability as a starter than you, than you did at the, uh, when he was uh, pressed into duty when Ryu went down. Yeah. Two things, two things. First of all, he looked good because Kikuchi and White didn't. (laughs) So there's a relativity there. And the other thing is, in just listening to you talk, you talk, was if he can get four years from somebody, if he can get four years with somebody, he's going for term. You know, he might oh, yeah. drop his annual rate as a as opposed. He's and if somebody walks in and says, "Ross, we're going to give you four years," he's done. You know, because that the, at his age to get four more years in the bigs, that's massive. Ross Stripling's a smart man and a smart businessman. I mean, he's looking to set himself up and his family up for the rest of his life, like all players are doing. But yeah, he he's not. He knows his limitations um, in that, uh, you know, some guys will bet on themselves in, for a year or two, but you know, he's in a position where the term is much more important, I think. And yeah, even if there is a slight discount on it, but are the Jays going to want to go four years with Ross Stripling? I mean, they think, you know, I, t- I talked to some guys off the record that, um, you know, they think that there's a chance that Ricky Tiedemann could, could actually be a part of that rotation. I don't know if it would be right next year, this season, coming year. It could be kind of like, uh, pardon me, this coming year. Yeah, even this coming year. Really, they, they don't want to say it publicly because they don't want to put the pressure on. They him don't want another Nate training. Pearson. <laughs> well, no. Well, yes. Is he another Nate Pearson or is he another Alec Manoa? Right. I guess that's because the question. Those yeah. are two examples of guys that you know went into spring training. With, with expectations on them one one fell flat and the, and the other by you know a month and a half into the season was was into the rotation um, the scouts love him um, everybody in the front office loves him he just doesn't have that that uh, backlog of work so I mean you can't go into spring training hoping that Ricky Tiedemann is going to be your guy but if you don't get somebody and maybe you're then maybe you accelerate yeah. that uh, that timeline with him a little bit and, and by, by all accounts he's sort of got the character and he certainly has the arm um, to deal with that kind of thing, but you know that's still a little bit of a of a, of a wish and a prayer. The J, the Jays are, and other as other teams around baseball are starting to do now too. 
they're being a little bit more aggressive with with young prospects, especially on the pitching side. If if you're ready to go, let them go, right? Um, but it, I don't think anybody would have would have expected the that to be a, a core part of their offseason plan for the rotation. I think it's a it's a bit of wishful thinking. Although we could see Ricky Tiedemann, and I think we will see Ricky Tiedemann, in fact, by some at some point in the 2023 season. Well, if you look at Manoa, Manoa had almost no experience really. He didn't have enough traditional experience to be and become a major league pitcher. And look what he did when he got when he got a chance. So yeah. I'm sure that well, influences Manoa had, them. He, had, he had college. He had the he had the college experience. Not I get experience, that. He had the innings, right? Yeah. Okay, so spring training is going to start tomorrow if it does. Um, Jays go with three catchers or no? They keep saying that that they're they're okay with uh, with having three pitchers and or catchers rather. It's funny. Uh, uh, Ernie Witt was uh, was in San Diego with um, Baseball Canada for the at the World Baseball Classic. Uh, press conference and I asked him what he thought about, you know, the Jays three pit catchers and, and, you know, having three catchers. And he says, I think it's a great idea because you're, you're essentially one foul tip away from having um, two catchers. So um, the thing is though, with that, I, I saw it a fair bit last towards the end of last season uh, before games, they were doing a lot of work with Moreno um, in the outfield. Right. Um, and, you know, so the, the whole idea is if you, if you're keeping three, you better make sure you get some some use out of out of Gabri, Gabby Moreno because he's he's a prospect that's you know very re- close to being ready for the big leagues and you want to get him in the lineup and you just don't want to get him in the lineup as a DH. So if you can throw him out in right field or if you can even throw him at uh, second base uh, occasionally to to sort of spell guys and then that's an option. They love Danny Jansen. Um, they really love Danny Jansen because they almost see him as an extension of the coaching staff. He's He's so good working with the pitchers um, and, and he, and they love the feedback that he gives on the pitchers. And I, you know, that's an important, obviously an important part of, of any catcher's role, but they also think that, that there's some upside with his bat. And, you know, we certainly saw flashes of, of that power last year. He was a much better hitter last year than he had been in his two or three previous seasons. So they think Agreed. they can get some production from him there. And with Alejandro Kirk, um, Atkins said this week that, you know, we really see him, as a heart of our order guy that, you know, he's a three, four five hitter. And one of that, you know, I think he basically says one of our, said one of our best bats in the lineup and they don't want to part with him. Now that's a GM trying to trump up his, his assets as, as the meetings are getting. Underway. But I think he's right. Yes. Agreed. I think he's right. And, and, and look, this is a guy who's probably going to catch 50, 60, 70 games and the rest of the time he'll be the DH. And I think they're fine with that. The, yeah. the guy who's kind of out on the limb is Moreno, and I, I wonder whether they t- try and turn him into a right fielder. I just I was just going to say the same thing, Bob. Maybe he is that right fielder since they Maybe he is. swung and miss at the winter meetings. You two are starting to sound like the general manager. Stop it. Well, this team well we're trying to, be to analyze this why team... they haven't done what they what we thought they should have done. And well, maybe they look at this team be and say, this, well, let's go this way. I mean, they still need a starting pitcher. We're not off that wagon. But yeah. The, the everyday lineup may be fine. Um, Teoscar Hernandez, uh, when they first tried to, you know, when they first got him, I mean, obviously they liked his bat, but he never, he was a terrible outfielder to start. And he, Horrible. Only, he you know, and he became only moderately better. Um, he wasn't very confident out there, but he became, at least he, he became adequate, right? Yep. And you know, Mark Budzinski works with, with the, um, 
the outfielders a lot. And and I think he was the one who was able to trans transform Hernandez into a, an adequate outfielder. Now he worked a lot with with Moreno late in that, late in the season, and they love uh, Moreno's um, athleticism. You know, to use uh, yeah. GM jargon, but it's true. He's he's a pretty good athletic young guy, and and uh, and his instincts are solid. And you know. Um, Right field is, is a spot where where you put guys that uh, you don't necessarily have a, a natural place for them, and and maybe he would be a fit out there if they if and then and then all of a sudden, um, you you've got those three you still have three catchers in, in your lineup and you're getting Moreno the, the playing time that he needs because he can hit too yeah. but he just needs playing time when when they you're first right. called him up in the summer he wasn't getting enough at bats to really get any traction and and uh, I think he became a little frustrated with that and that's why they sent him back the triple a but if you're going to keep three catchers on the lineup you're going to have to find a way to use them all and as you said bob kirk would be a natural at at, at dh the days that he's not catching it's just a matter of sure what you get out of morano we got to get out of here time is our enemy thank you mr longley we appreciate it my pleasure guys we'll do it okay. again we'll talk soon all right Thanks, buddy bye-bye yep. we'll be back in a minute the world's greatest sporting event only rolls around every four years and every four years everyone becomes a soccer fan. That's right, billions of eyes are about to fall upon 32 nations battling it out for soccer supremacy. The Men in Blazers podcast will once again be your guide to every incredible goal, every heartbreaking defeat, and every moment of human triumph. This is America's number one soccer podcast, bringing you expert analysis of every U.S. men's national game, and exclusive interviews from a slew of athletes and celebrity guests all month long. This is what the world will be talking about. This is the one podcast that makes soccer fun and entertaining for everyone. Follow Men in Blazers on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, or listen early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Our thanks to uh, both James Duffy of TSN and Rob Longley of the Toronto Sun for uh, being with us on today's uh, program. You watched the Maple Leafs perform again, I assume? I did. They are uh, they are impressive right now. And, uh, you know, when you think that uh, Kyle Dubas went out and got two goaltenders that people were starting to shake their heads at, in Matt Murray and Ilya Samsonov, um, and both are playing well. Back to back shutouts. Yeah, I mean they, and 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 I mean both are both both always had talent. It was just that they were never able to focus it. But right now, that's a really big story, and it's not getting enough play, Bob, because of Mitch Marner being so successful with this uh, twenty-one game streak now. Uh, yeah, I guess so. Although, I'm, I mean, the streak is easy a, to talk about. That's what I'm saying. Side I mean, story. I mean, the real story is how well the Leafs have played. And I have to be honest with you. I'm, I'm surprised the third and fourth lines don't impress me. They should because they're playing well, but I'm not impressed by the cast of characters they've got in the third and fourth lines. And yet they scored last night too, Bob. They scored a couple of key goals. I get you. It just kind of is happening, and I'm surprised by it. Well, but, the, you know, the, the, the magic of a third and fourth line, the way the, the Maple Leafs do it, if, if you become neutral 
If you score as many goals as the other the opposition third and fourth lines do or the lines you're up against, or you don't allow any goals at all and don't score at all, if they're neutral, then those first two lines for the Maple Leafs are just so darn effective uh, that, it, that, that it's a win-win for Toronto. And the other part of this, and, and Scotty talked about this when he was on with us last week, you know, team defense uh, has become such a vital part of the success of the Maple Leafs. Austin Matthews playing a 200-foot game. Mitch Marner, for all the hype about the streak, you know, kills penalties, he's on the power play, he's in his own zone. They're doing a lot of things right. They, they truly are doing a lot of things right, not just in front of the opposition net, but in front of their own net as well. We spent a lot of time in the early part of the season talking about Boston's early run and then New Jersey's early run. And unfortunately, maybe the schedule being what it is, maybe the fact that we're in December now, but we haven't really spent as much time on the Maple Leafs run, which is, what, 14 games now? Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean the panic that was... The panic that had set in after the West Coast 11 trip. games, after 11 games when they were only at 500. I mean, there was an expectation that they were supposed to be with Boston. And I think, I think the Boston success and the New Jersey success exacerbated the Leaf position. So everybody started to point at Boston being so good and New Jersey being so good. And why aren't the Leafs like that? Well, the Leafs are like that now, you know. But he here's the interesting thing to me. You know, Boston and New Jersey are have more than 20 wins. Vegas has 19 and the Leafs in Winnipeg have 17. So th that to me is that and and the Leafs streak is rather impressive at this time. Um, and and you do it without Morgan Riley for for all intents and purposes. That's right. You do it without Jake Muzzin. And I don't expect Jake Muzzin probably to play again. Uh, and TJ Brody came back last night and and, and played limited minutes. So it, the, the defense for the Maple Leafs, as well as everyone else playing team defense, has been, has been impressive. The, the problem, too, becomes is that if we get too Toronto-centric, you know, you know what happens with the rest of the country? They start to roll their eyes. Well, and I think know. That all, we, all we care about are the Toronto Maple Leafs. But right now, the Toronto Maple Leafs might be, in my opinion, the second-best team in hockey. Behind and the still, Bruins. no matter how well they play, you cannot quantify what they will do when it matters in the postseason. There's no, there's no way to do that. This, there's no this way to is, say, well, now they're going to be different. Well, th this is comparable to those years prior to Kawhi showing up for the Raptors, where the Raptors were perennial 50-game winners. And it didn't really matter until what you did in the playoffs. And then when you met LeBron, you lost. So right? you're saying the Leafs need a Kawhi, huh? <laughs> The Leafs have a Kawhi. They just need some support guys and some a little more grit. Well, I think they know that. And they're they getting know it that. now. We got to go. That's it for us. Have a nice weekend, everybody. And we'll uh, see you next week. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>